0: So um, let's pray for them one more time, and then let's pray for us that we can uh, receive what we need from the Lord's Word this morning. Uh, God, we we once again lift up uh, Danny to you. We pray that uh, it was good to hear him talking. We we pray that uh, uh, whatever it is would have been as much of a, a scary uh, as scary as it was. Lord, we pray that. Uh, he'll be able to look back on it and that it was um, not more than a scare. We pray that uh, he'd be able to fully recover. Um, and God, we we do pray that you would, uh, for his heart and for Sue's heart and mind, that you would calm them, give them a real uh, discernible peace. Uh, may this be a, a moment that would serve as a witness to others who don't have that kind of peace. Lord, as we crack open your word this morning, Father, we pray that we would receive from it what we need. Would you encourage our hearts, God, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, we, we do need uh, encouragement. I think that's uh, why we need the book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans has been uh, widely regarded as the most doctrinally rich book in the Bible. Uh, But it's not just doctrinally rich. It is for encouragement. And uh, for whatever reason, some of us, uh, all of us from time to time struggle with encouragement. We need uh, to be strengthened. We are weak. Paul knows that. Paul needed that. He knew that the church in Rome needed that. The church in Rome, they were kind of by themselves. They didn't have an apostle that planted them. Paul had never even been there. And so you'll see as we read through the letter, his heart, he longs to be with them. But he wants to strengthen them. He wants to be with them, not just to hang out. He wants to be with them to encourage them and to be encouraged by them because Paul needed the encouragement as well. Um, but he starts in a surprising place if you turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to unpack a few terms, and I hope that the effect of this passage would be to encourage you greatly. Whatever your situation, whatever your hardship, whatever your distress right now, I pray that this passage would encourage your heart and that you would leave here strengthened, fortified, encouraged. But Paul starts, before he gets to the piece about encouragement, he starts with his identity, who he is. And that's where we need to start. We often start with our circumstances, our situations, rather than starting with who we are regardless of circumstance or situation. And so this greeting, uh, we're going to read through verse 17 today, and he starts with a greeting. Here's who he is, and then to whom he's writing, here's who you are. And it's not just from Lucas to CFC, like from Paul to Romans, just so that the mail makes it where it's supposed to go. This is not about a postal address. This is a deeply theological here's who I am and why I have any business even writing to you, and here's who you are and why you should be receiving and how you should be receiving what I'm writing to you. So before we dive into the rest of the letter, before we get into the deep doctrinal stuff and the identity of Israel and what we're supposed to think about the law and all of those, all that good stuff coming up, it starts with Paul saying, here's who I am, and I'm writing to you, here's who you are and how you should be receiving what I'm giving to you. And we find ourselves in that exchange because we're supposed to receive the letter that same way. And the effect that he wants is encouragement. And as we move along, Paul is sometimes not going to sound very encouraging. Sometimes he'll drop a rebuke. Sometimes it feels like tough love. But you see in these first few verses, he's not... um, suffering from a multiple personality disorder he loves them dearly but the weight of the letter is being prefaced with this mutual encouragement piece and he starts with who he is first paul a servant or slave or bond servant of christ jesus it's weightier than when you go to a restaurant and the person that brings you your food and you call them a server This is a little bit more like slavery, though not the chattel slavery that we saw here in America. But a bondservant, uh, completely belonging to Christ Jesus. Then he gets more specific. He's called to be an apostle. That means someone who's sent with a message. And he's set apart. He's excluded, separate, pulled out for something else that other people aren't. And he's set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel is a message. The gospel means good news. The word from which we get evangel. And you can't, have, you can't belong to good news or a message without being a messenger. This is what defines Paul. He's called out to be a sent one, set apart. For this message, this good news of the gospel, the good news that isn't new, it fulfills what has been promised through the prophets in the Old Testament, verse 2, which He, God, promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The center of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he talks about these two aspects. In verse 4, or in verse 3, he says that the Son, Jesus, was descended from the line of David according to the flesh. Now there are any number of ways that Paul could have emphasized that Jesus was human. I don't think he's just trying to emphasize he was both man and God, although we see that here, but he could have chosen Adam, he could have chosen Abraham, he chose David, because what he's emphasizing is that power and that reign. And so he was born in this human lineage, but David failed, and Solomon failed, and all the way down, all the kings failed, they couldn't rule. And before that, before you read 1 and 2 Samuel, First and Second Kings, you're hanging out in Judges, and it pretty bad. Bad stuff is happening. It keeps getting worse, and the author keeps whispering in your ear. More than whispering is clear in the text if you read through the book of Judges. The reason why things were so bad is they had no king, and so you finish the book of Judges longing for a king, and then you get to First and Second Samuel. They don't ask for a king the right way, so they just throw Saul up there. Uh, he doesn't do well. David isn't perfect, but he does pretty well, but then his sons don't do well, and then the kingdom is split and you've got all these bad kings that can't lead. So we're all kind of stuck in the book of Judges in this downward spiral of things going bad, things not going rightly because we don't have a king, and Paul is like, now we've got the king. Through the line of David. And the reason why he is the true king, it was proven in his resurrection, verse 4. He was declared to be the son of God. Declared probably isn't the best word here. Uh, so the translators don't want it to sound like he became the son of God because the word really is he was appointed why do they want, want to do that well because if you say he became the son of God it makes it sound like he wasn't the son of God before but that's to miss the point at Christ's resurrection he didn't become the son of God but what happened there was a transaction took place for him to reign now in a way did he reign before God reigns right but there's something new, this new kingdom that he's ushering in that was clinched at his resurrection. And So he comes from the line of David. Here's the one who's holding the scepter, so to speak, and was shown to be the true Son of God, was appointed in power to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness, that is the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ Our Lord, there's another term that we use very often, but we don't really think about it. Christ as Lord, he's master, he's king, that's authority. And Paul is, he's saying, I'm a servant to him. I belong to him. I do what he says. He commissions me and I do what he commissions me to do. That's who I am. And he can't get the encouragement that he needs to be the kind of Paul that we revere today without that sense of clear identity. He finds his identity in Christ, the one who calls him. This Christ who came through David's line. This Christ who is appointed son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit by his resurrection from the dead. This Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus is the Messiah that was told in the Old Testament. Christ is Messiah, the anointed one, and he is our Lord. Verse 5, it's through Christ that we have received grace and apostleship. Here by "we," he still means him. We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of His name among all the nations. So there's his mission. He belongs to Christ, Christ is his master, Christ is his Lord, and what does Christ want from him? To take this message, this good news, to the nations, everywhere. That's burning in Paul's heart. And now he starts including those to whom he's writing. He says he's received this grace and apostleship, this sentness, to take this gospel, this good news of God about Jesus Christ and his reign and his rule, to proclaim it to the nations. Verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And now you see that he's starting to say, here's who I am, and it could sound like I've got all this weight, I've got all this authority, I'm gonna write this letter and you should do what I say. Well that's true, but he's inviting them into that. He's saying you are called and you are set apart and this isn't just a Paul thing. You wanna know how I get beaten and attacked and I go right back into the same city that beat me to preach the gospel? You want to know how it is that I live my life without dodging suffering? When it's for the right cause, I lean into the suffering? It's because I'm called, and guess what? So are you. I've never met you. Paul's never been there. We'll see in a moment. He wants to be there, but he hasn't been able to get there yet. He's only heard about them. But if they're truly believers, he knows who they are. They're called, and they share that kind of identity. And he doesn't want to start talking to them about doctrine or how to live the Christian life before establishing that identity including you, verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The word called there, uh, the word called relates to the word for assembly or church in the New Testament. Uh, The word for assembly is called out. It means assembly, but the The words itself, if you break it apart, those who are called out, that's the church. The word is ecclesia. Uh, At least in Spanish, from the Latin, you can still hear iglesia, ecclesia. You can still hear it. That's what it's from. It means called out. The word church kind of loses that a little bit, but that's what it means. It's not just an assembly. It's an assembly of a certain kind of people. And he tells them in verse 6, I've been called out, you, you have been called to belong to Jesus Christ, or you've been called of Jesus Christ. The word there, belong there is put in to kind of help us understand what's going on, but called of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, he's the one who calls you, he's the one who owns you, he's the one who determines what you're called to do. And now his address, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, and there it is again, called, called to be saints, Holy ones, set apart, different, separate from everybody else. I am someone who's called and set apart, and so were you, verse 6. So were you, verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's going to get into how they relate to one another, to encourage one another. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because you've given me so much money. <laughs> no, it's their faith. Right? It's their faith. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I, can I just preach to myself for a second? Or for those of you who are involved in ministry in sure. and, and, and significant ways, you've got people that you're overseeing that you're discipling it's so easy to get discouraged it's so easy to get discouraged when uh, things aren't happening the way you want them to happen and paul had a lot of things to be discouraged about he wanted to get to rome he couldn't get to rome he he wanted to plant a church there and the church sprouted without him it's like you don't even need an apostle to start the church he's been beaten he's been shipwrecked all kinds of things that he has and will experience in his life but he remains encouraged because he hears about the faith of these Roman Christians that he hasn't even met yet. And as I'm studying this passage and looking at this, I'm like, do I get encouraged enough for the things that are happening here at CFC, for the growth that we are seeing here at CFC? I want to take my cue from Paul and be encouraged by the things that he gets encouraged by. I mean, if you've ever admired an athlete or admired any, anybody who does something at a super proficient level, and you see the interview, and the interviewer asks, how do you do it? What's your trick? How do you do your drills? How did you get to be this level of, of a musician? And they say, well, here's a couple of tricks I learned. Right, and you kind of lean in to listen. What are the tips and tricks? How did you get there? Well, if you were to ask Paul, how did, you, how did you remain encouraged? How did you keep going in when you know you're going to get killed, you're going to get beaten, you're going to get stoned, left for dead? Man, because if one person changes, if one person comes to faith, the obedience of faith, they obey the gospel by coming to faith, that fills up my prayer time. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the change in this person. Thank you, God, for the faith of this person. So he says, first, before I get into it with y'all, and it's going to get rough. (laughs) We're not going to leave chapter 1 before it gets rough. We're not going to go there today. First, he wants to talk about identity. He wants to talk about his identity as being called, and he brings them into it. You've been called, and that's why I thank God for you. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit In the gospel of his son, there it is, the center of everything is this good news, this message of Jesus Christ and getting it out there. And without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at least, at last, succeed in coming to you. One of the reasons why he wants to get to them so bad has nothing to do with seeing the Colosseum for the first time. Taking selfies with Silas, you know. He just heard about their faith. That is why I was hugely encouraged when we had that crazy COVID timeout and we're like zooming videos in the summer. We kind of see each other, but we're not really with each other. And then I start hearing the chatter like, we want to get together again. Zoom is not it. <laughs> But i hope that part of that encouragement of getting together is seeing the faith of other people and it's so easy just like for pastors to fall into a negative lane where we only get disgruntled by people the people we sit next to the person that was rude when you were trying to enter the bathroom the person that didn't whatever yeah we're broken humans and we're not perfect but overall our encouragement is seeing that you look around and you see different ages Different ethnicities, different backgrounds, and we've all been plucked out and called out for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the end, these are the people who've got your back. And these are the people that you are to be encouraged by, encouraged by their faith. And I think some of us, we feel like we don't have a lot to offer to encourage other people. But you don't need much to offer to encourage other people. You don't need to be able to lead a dynamic Bible study. You don't need to know the Greek language, you don't have to say profound things, you don't have to learn how to pray long, Puritan-sounding prayers. Are you, do you have faith? <laughs> are you a faithful Christian? And other people are encouraged by that. Don't shrink back and hide. Be present with people because that encourages other people. It certainly encouraged Paul, and he desperately wanted to get to them when he prays, I mean, is he exaggerating? Verse 9, God is my witness. You can ask God himself, when I pray, what can I not stop doing when I pray? I know for me, sometimes if, if my prayers are monitored, I have some nonstop requests. Some nonstop, God, can you get this out of my way? It's bothering me. And that's not bad to pray that. But it's interesting when you look at Paul and he's like, God is my witness, Without ceasing, I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that I can get to you. I want to be with you. One of those reasons is because he's encouraged by their faith, as we're picking up in the first few verses there, verses 8 through 10. But verse 11, he says, he gets more specific, I, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now imagine... Someone's standing there reading this letter to the church at Rome, and they're reading this letter out loud. And right there, they sit up, they're like, Oh, if he comes, he's going to impart a spiritual gift. What spiritual gift might that be? We all speak in different languages. Well, we have the gift of healing so we can touch people, and they something better than all of that. He says what it is I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He doesn't mean the spiritual gifts you see in 1 Corinthians 12. He means to strengthen them. How does he strengthen them? Verse 12, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want to get to you so bad because I want to impart some spiritual gift. Oh, really? What is that? I want to hear about your faith, and I want you to hear about mine. Does that sound somewhat mundane? Like, <laughs> this doesn't sound... He's the Apostle Paul, man. You think he could... You know, we've heard about Peter, his shadow... People just get healed like, what are you going to, it's very simple. I want to hear your story. I don't want you to hear mine. Not a random story, but the gospel story and what Christ is doing in my life. And I want to hear what Christ is doing in your life. And what is the result of that? What does he say is the result of that in verse 11? If he imparts that spiritual gift to them, that is, verse 12, encouraging them by his faith and them encouraging him by their faith, what is happening there? At the end of verse 11, strength. If you feel weak, you feel like you're not a strong Christian, join the club. That's, that's the life. It's the person who's like, I'm so strong as a Christian, I'm feeling pretty great right now. That's when you're probably in trouble. But if you're feeling weak, there's a way to be strengthened, and it's other Christians. We strengthen one another. And I love how Paul's humility pours through. He is the Apostle Paul. He's seen Jesus Christ with his own eyes. He's been healed miraculously. He, he's doing these amazing things. a a fide hero of the faith. And he wants to go to a town, a place, where he's got Christians he's never met before. And he wants to be encouraged by them. And I want you to know I'm as encouraged by you, if not more, as you are by me. When I hear, when I hear that you're doing well, it, man, that just really puts a wind in my sail because the gospel is taking effect in people's lives. That, in turn, encourages me, and it just puts a pep in my step for what I'm doing, and I hope that as you see others around you, you get that same effect he longs to see them for strength, verse 11. Mutual encouragement, verse 12. It goes both ways. And verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. But he wants to come to them, why? In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He's writing to a mixed group here. This, the Christians at Rome were mostly Gentiles, probably, But you had a lot of Jews coming back, uh, and he addresses them in the letter later on. But he says, I don't want to just hear about your faith. I want to minister as well, and other people will join the faith. Why? Verse 14, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And real quick, I just want to say, I don't think we're going to really be encouraged by each other's faith if we don't first identify ourselves as people who are about that faith. That the number one thing in your life is your faith and not something else. When the number one thing in your life is your faith and talking about that faith and inviting other people to that faith, that's when you'll be able to get encouraged when other people have faith. But if faith takes a back seat, faith is... Secondary, tertiary, marginal in your life. When someone else is exhibiting faith, you're like, yeah, you know? It doesn't hit you as hard as it does for Paul. So you've got to be eager about the gospel first, and then when you see the gospel being effective, then it encourages you. But you can't have one without the other. He's eager to proclaim the gospel. He's eager to take it to other people who don't have it yet. And when he sees its effect in people, You also who are in Rome, uh, he's encouraged by it, and he's strengthened by it. Now you've got these famous verses in 16 and 17, which often are preached without the context of where we just were. But if we're saying, I have to be eager for the gospel, I have to be eager for this good news message, and when I'm eager for it, I'm going to be encouraged when it takes root in other people's lives, we need these two verses, 16 and 17, and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I don't know if you write in your Bibles at all, but if you do, I circled the three fours there. Right at the beginning of verse 16, For... In the middle of verse 16, 4, and then the beginning of 17, 4. And the word for is giving you the reason for something that just came, right? So why is he not ashamed of the gospel? The word for is giving you a clue to look back to the previous verse because everything that follows the word for is the reason for the previous thing he just said. Right? That's how we use the English language. I'm going to the store for I need some bread, right? I need some bread is the reason for going to the store. So look at it. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now you can say, why why is this there? It's because he's eager in verse 15. So why is he eager? Because he's not ashamed. And if you reverse engineer that in our own minds and hearts, we might ask, why am I not eager might it be because I am ashamed? The gospel is not a solution to us because we've been uh, taught by the world that the gospel doesn't solve things, that the gospel doesn't take effect. Then you have slews of Christians going, wait, but the gospel does solve things, world. And we want to be relevant Christians, we want to be relevant churches, and so we take the gospel and make it about social issues. To show that, see, if you really believe the gospel, you solve social issues. But now you're veering into a different lane of of an adjusted gospel. So is the gospel still the gospel if there are still poor people around? Is the gospel still the gospel if there's still suffering around the world? I'm not saying those things are irrelevant. I'm not saying those aren't the gospel. What is the gospel? He said it several times already. Faith. When somebody has faith, regardless of their financial situation, regardless of how wise or foolish they are, like he just talked about, going to people who are both wise and foolish, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless if they're Greek or barbarian, verse 14, wise or foolish, he's not ashamed of the gospel for, okay, so now why is he not ashamed of the gospel Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not the power of God to change politicians. Not the power of God to change your financial outlook. Not the power of God to heal you from physical disease. Bigger and underneath all those things. It's a very simple thing. People getting saved. People coming to faith. That's what the gospel does. And that's why he's not ashamed of it. The gospel does work. He doesn't need to adjust it. He doesn't need to change it. He doesn't need to pull up Google stats. They're the evidence of it themselves. How did this church in Rome come to be? They heard the gospel, and they came to faith. So why is he eager to preach the gospel? Because he's not ashamed of it. Why is he not ashamed of it? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also to the greek of course the came from the the 12 jewish apostles and out from there for everyone one more for the beginning of verse 17 for in it the righteousness of god is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith how do we live and not die how do we have eternal life rather than eternal death By faith. By faith. And he emphasizes it by saying it's out of faith into faith, or from faith for faith. Faith on top of faith. From A to Z, it's faith. From beginning to end, it's faith. From start to finish, it's faith. All the way through, it's faith is what he means. Faith, faith, faith. And if you wanted to highlight a repeated word, you could start with the word faith, just in these 17 verses we're looking at. And you can see Paul punctuating this opening of the letter with faith, 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 faith. Not works, not background, not job status, faith. And when other people are about faith, that encourages Paul. And when Paul continues to bring other people of faith, that encourages them, and it will when he comes to them. And so he tells them he's eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because he's not ashamed of it. Am I ashamed of it? If I'm going to be unashamed of it, I need to have his same reasoning in verse 17. I need to know that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Next time you're talking to an atheist or somebody, you're trying to communicate the gospel to them, don't be nervous that you don't know all the answers to their objections. They should be nervous because you have a power that you can't put into words. You're coming with an authority that can't be explained, and you can say almost nothing, and God can zap them. It's power. Don't be ashamed of that. Look them dead in the eye. and Just tell them you're praying for them. You're praying for them. And then see what happens at night when God's at work, uh, like uh, Jesus' parable of the sower who sows, and then what does the sower do after he sows the word of God? He sleeps while something takes effect that is out of our control. That's power. The power is not in our apologetics. The power is not in our ability to explain ourselves. The power is not in the size of our vocabulary or our education. The power is God using the message itself to save people. So if we're going to be eager to share the gospel, verse 15, we need to have his same reason to not be ashamed of it. And that same reason to not be ashamed of the gospel is to understand that it is powerful. And why is it powerful? For it is God's righteousness revealed. How does somebody get to the status of being righteous? God has to reveal it to them, and it has to be embraced. How? Through faith. And he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, just to tie again with verse 2, that the Old Testament has been saying this. So what's new is the revelation of how it happens, but faith isn't new. Faith has always been the way in which you please God. Faith has always been the route to get to where you need to be if you're going to have life. So, brothers and sisters, really quickly, some application. If we're going to enjoy getting together, we need to enjoy getting together for the right reasons, and those right reasons are to be encouraged and strengthened by each other's faith. It's hard to do that on Sundays, although it does happen on Sundays, but we need to find ways to get with each other in ways that we're hearing each other's lives and hearing each other's growth of faith whether it's in a growth group or one-on-one or one-on-two or coming over each other's houses and have your game night and everything but in between you know talk about what's going on in your life and what the lord is teaching you and that is going to be a great source of encouragement to other people and i don't want you just to receive that as a dutiful assignment to go and listen to other people but to also understand that other people need to hear you other people need to hear what's going on in your life and how your faith is growing and they're mutually encouraged by that I want you to find the correct source of encouragement I want all of us to lean into this source of encouragement which is the effective gospel of Jesus Christ and that our hearts would never brim with more joy than when we hear about the gospel taking effect in someone else's life and when we see it that way that powerful gospel then we'll be eager to share it when we're eager to share it we'll be encouraged when we see it taking effect it will take effect it will take effect we just need to be eager for it and encouraged by it with each other when i ask the worship team to come up as we close in a song and father as we do